The sky is full of stars, very few that you can actually name. The same holds true for the world of exploration, but today's guest is an exploration star that you are going to want to know. His name is Victor Vescovo, and he's quite simply incredible. I'm Dustin Planholt, founder and CEO of Life's Tough Media. This season of Life's Tough, but Explorers Are Tougher is made possible through the generous support of Ripple. We hope you enjoy the series. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers Are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weese Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore. It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club, just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. If you look at the sky at night, there are a lot of stars up there, but very few that you could actually name. And the same holds true for the world of explorers or explorations. The ones that come to mind quickly are Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall. And during the last few years, those in the know know Victor Vescovo. Now, just in case you're not the know, and I'm going to give you a really abbreviated CV or resume. Stanford undergrad, MIT master's, Harvard Business School, U.S. Naval Reserve intelligence officer, retiring as a commander, a managing partner of a private equity firm, climb Mount Everest, first person to dive to the bottom of all five oceans, while incidentally bioprospecting for extremophiles, skied to the North and South Poles. And today he comes to us from Hawaii, actually after achieving another first. Victor Vescovo, welcome. Thank you very much, Richard. You're too kind. Well, no, I mean, I, I have to, to admit, during even the period of COVID, where everybody is is complaining about, you know, having cabin fever, You've continued to go out there and explore. So you're just coming back, what, 48 hours from another first. Do you want to tell everyone what it is? 
Well, sure. On that first note, though, about you know COVID and, and people being homebound, uh, for me, it's just made things more difficult. But if something's not impossible, it's just a matter of engineering or just applying the resources and the will to do something. It's just harder. So people need to put more effort into it, possibly. And that's what we did on this most recent expedition. But what we uh, just did was we did our annual refit of uh, my research ship, the pressure drop, and the deep diving submersible limiting factor. So it was in Hawaii anyway. And we thought that there'd be an interesting expedition to do, which would be actually be the first full ascent of Mauna Kea. Now, in Mount, the mountaineering community, when you're asked the trick question, what's the highest mountain on earth, people reflexively say Mount Everest. But actually, no, it's actually Mauna Kea when you measure it from the base of the volcano to the summit. It's just that more than half of it is underwater. So then the issue is, well, you can't really climb that. Yes, but if you have a submarine that's capable of diving very deeply, you can go down and get to the base float up and then not using you know powered vehicles you could theoretically canoe the 25 plus miles to the shore and then bicycle and climb all the way to some it was theoretically possible so i said yeah that could be a beating but it's doable and so i did the training i put the resources together to make it happen and you know 48 hours ago more or less we finished it and i was able to do it with a local hawaiian PhD in marine science, which made it even more special and inclusive. And it was just a great experience. But I've got the wounds on my hand to show where the ore bit into my hand after, you know, six hours of canoeing. So, you know, just to sort of bring people up to speed. So you're, you're talking about a deep submersible. This is the same uh, craft submarine that took you to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, the the lowest point on Earth. You were doing a, a retrofit. Or- Eight times now, which incidentally is by far a world record. And I know you're going again in a few more weeks to go there. And so for people who do not know the island of Hawaii, uh, this has two snow-capped volcanoes, Mauna Kea, Mauna Loa. And it goes um, now the total from that base to the summit is what, about 30,000 feet? It, it can be. I mean, how you define the base of Mauna Kea is kind of tough. The further out you go from the big island of Hawaii, it gets slightly deeper and deeper. So, you know, kind of where do you draw the line? It's pretty flat when you get to about 5,000 or 5,100 meters, which is what we do. I think that's pretty deep. And at that point, the vertical gain from the base to the summit is, is easily higher than Everest. So what was the most challenging part of this whole expedition? It looks like the canoeing, which should have been the easiest. No, it's interesting that you said because the person that I did the expedition with, uh, Dr. Cliff Capano of the Big Island, he's actually from the Big Island. It was interesting. We were almost like two sides of the same coin where he was born and raised in Hawaii. He was very comfortable canoeing. He'd been doing it since he was a boy, reasonably comfortable bicycling, but he'd never really been at altitude and never done climbing. And I was almost the reverse of that. I'm very comfortable up in the high mountains and on ice and all that, but put me in a canoe and I'll have to admit, the first plan was actually to take one person ocean going canoes. And I trained for that and I flipped it over about nine times in less than two hours. That wasn't going to work. I have too high of a center of gravity, evidently. So we ended up with a three person canoe with Cliff in front of me, me in the middle, and an expert local Hawaiian in the back steering. And we were able to do that. So that was the hardest part for me was actually canoeing. It ended up being 27 miles of open ocean canoeing with weather that was not cooperating which made it quite difficult, but we were able to maintain a steady five mile an hour pace and we got to shore and then we went terrestrial, thank God. 
So, Victor, you and I know a lot of the same explorers. I know you know Don Walsh and Bertrand Picard and, you know, all of these famous names, Buzz Aldrin. And so the one question everybody asks when they talk about you is what drives him? I mean, you could have on any number of points in your life sort of called it a day and sort of you know, hung out at the local golf course and, you know, talked about going, you know, being an intelligence officer or climbing Mount Everest, any of those things. And every year people are like, wow, that guy has just achieved something more. So what is the driving mechanism behind you? I don't know. It's it's just how my mind works or how I was raised or the other experiences. And maybe I just have an acute appreciation for the limited time we have on this earth. And I'm, I really want to do as much as I possibly can and experience as much as possible. And I've been fortunate where I've been able to generate the means to be able to do that. And so I think people are only limited by their imagination. And I, I just can't fathom the idea of stopping running. You know, it's kind of the, the metaphor, which is, okay, you know, I did my, you know, four miles, I'm done. It's like, well, no, you can do more. There's always something more interesting that you can maybe do. And I'll keep doing it until physically I can't. Well, I was going to ask you that. I, I know that you're uh, a few years younger than I am. And the idea right now in my head of getting a training to go up something like Mount Everest, that would be a Herculean task. And 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 I also realized that I don't recover as quickly as I once did. I'm, I think I'm smarter than I was when I was in my 20s and 30s. And maybe that's the adaptation. But do you ever worry that you're not going to know when you're ready to sort of not take that last climb or dive? Maybe. I mean, I've been a pilot since I was 19. And one thing that, you know, you're trained as a pilot is to constantly evaluate risk, including yourself. Are you fit to fly? Are the conditions too dangerous for you in your current state with your current equipment? So I think I apply that. But I think people in a very general sense are far, far more limiting in thinking what they can do than they actually can. I mean, everybody knows that you can always probably run about two or three times further than the point at which your body says, I'm kind of done. Now, if, you know, if there was a bull chasing you or there was gunfire, you would go further. And the key, I think, in doing these things is having the mental drive and discipline to say, no, my body isn't in charge. My mind is. My mind controls my reality. And I can make my body do difficult things. So th- this reminds me a little of, of Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, greatest basketball player ever, arguably, right? There's other people that are maybe in that realm. But, you know, no doubt he was a driven guy. When he was in 10th grade, he was cut from his high school basketball team. Within a few years, within less than uh, two years, he was the top uh, high school recruit in basketball, was on the Olympic team, you know, only a few years after that. But for him, there always seemed to be a chip on his shoulder from being cut from the uh, 10th grade. Ed Hillary, I remember talking to him, and when he was 12 years old in New Zealand, he moved to a new school district, and because he was so skinny and his ribs were sticking out, they put him in a in a class for, in phys ed class for spe- people with special needs, and that never left his mind. So, Victor, when when you were a kid, what was the seminal driving moment or influence that at least set you on a course? You know, it wasn't like either of those, to be quite frank. Uh, From a very early age, I loved maps and I loved geography and I loved reading. 
I mean, I read Jules Verne when I was a very young kid, and I loved tales of adventure, whether it be science fiction or fantasy. I loved maps. I loved the Lord of the Rings, all these things. It's just part of my nature. And so as I got older and I had the freedom to do things that I chose to do, I did things that were more extreme and started mountain climbing and doing all that stuff. And then as I got more resources, as I got older in life, I could do some things that were very novel, like the deep sea diving, et cetera. So for me, it came from an angle, not from any kind of, um, as you put it, a chip on my shoulder for something. It wasn't that at all. It was just an inherent curiosity combined with um, training and just a, a disposition to just say, you know, why not go over that hill? How can you not? And how can you not put yourself at least a little bit of risk? Otherwise, you're not really fully living, are you? I mean, that's where I come from. Yeah, I mean, I guess where where I'm kind of getting at, if if you look at your background, you know, the Stanford, MIT, Harvard Business School, U.S. Navy, yeah. managing partner of an equity firm, these are all extreme alpha situations, right? These are people who play to win. These are, are tough people. And it seems like you have effortlessly, and maybe there's something no. I, do, I don't know, but is there, is there anything that you failed at? Yeah, any number of things. I mean, I've had some serious mountaineering accidents where I didn't qualify uh, the risks properly. I have failed a, a check ride on one of my, on one of my uh, tests to do a multi-engine plane. That was kind of a bummer. You know, but the issue is it, it doesn't define you. I mean, failure is a way to learn and, and get better. You just can't be dismayed by it. I love the way that Elon Musk tests rockets. He lets them explode. And believe me, you find things out really quickly by embracing failure. I think that's a wonderful thing about being an American. I hear that all the time from my friends who are from other cultures. And they say a remarkable thing about Americans, other than they smile so much, is that we have this amazing ability to embrace failure. And it's not a badge of dishonor. It's actually something that we use for creativity and personal drive, just like Michael Jordan or anyone else. So you have um, just completed this uh, check ride. I know you're going to the Marianas Trench again. Why again the Marianas Trench? You've been there, as you've mentioned, eight times. A couple of things. Uh, it's now one of the most uh, explored areas on the seafloor. But I think a couple of things. One, I'm taking uh, some commercial passengers down. But what that allows me to do is actually to fund other expeditions that I do that don't really have that capability. Um, I'm, I'm not in the same class as some of the other billionaire explorers that are out there. I have some means, obviously, but it's not unlimited. So that will allow me later to potentially dive for the first time in the Philippine Trench, which we believe is the only other 10,000 meter ocean trench that has never been visited by man. Who doesn't want to do that? and also potentially execute what we're hoping might become the deepest wreck dive in history. If we can find the wrecks off the Philippines from the Battle of Samar as well, which I'm personally fascinated in because I'm an amateur military historian. So we get to do those things. But going back to the Mariana Trench, one thing we have not been able to do quite yet, because it's very difficult, is get some sizable rocks from the pair of tectonic plates down there that are crashing into each other. And the marine geologists, are very, very interested in us getting some samples. And the biologist wants to get the rocks that have these amazing bacterial mats on them that we've, that we've now identified a couple of places. And what's so fun is that I've now been down there so many times, I know where to go. I know where the rocks are that I want to get. In fact, I had one of my clutches, but I couldn't properly put it into a basket. So hopefully with time and practice, we're going to be able to get some great geological samples. No promises, but that's the, the big objective. You know, uh, I was I was speaking to uh, Kathy Sullivan just the other day. I know you dove with her. Oh, she's awesome. She is an awesome person. Uh, she's quite driven, very disciplined person. 
And um, she said to me about you, and this is coming from a woman, the first American woman to walk in space, first woman to go to the Marianas Trench. She said that you are probably the most curious person that <laughs> she has ever met. And to me, that's a, that's a pretty, she doesn't give a lot of compliments. If you know Kathy, she's not one to give compliments. So again, who was the role model? What made you so curious? I mean, was it your parents, your grandparents and uncles, somebody you read about? No, you know what? I think it, in, at least in my case, it just came down to how my brain got wired in the womb or something, because I'll never forget that my father at one point was working in the education realm and he had encyclopedias and he had all these books about just a massive number of topics in his library. And when I was left alone for any amount of time, I literally would just go into his library, sit down and just read them in kind of the order that they were on the shelf. It didn't matter if it was about botany or engineering or chemistry. I didn't care. I loved just gathering information. It made me happy. And I'm still that way to this day. Just something innate. You know, um, I think last summer or two summers ago, you might have seen or met my boys in Portugal, uh, twin boys, and they're 10 years old. So think about the 10-year-old Victor Vascovo. What would the now Victor Vascovo say to the 10-year-old Victor Vascovo? Oh, goodness. I would say just keep doing what you're doing. Stay curious. Work hard. It'll all be worth it. And you'll get to do more than you ever thought you could. And and is that the advice you would give to would-be explorers? Yes, with a little bit of a twist. And it's the general thing that I would tell any person and probably the one theme that I try to communicate when people talk to me about, you know, all the adventures I've been in or, or what have you, which is again and again, people, please understand you are capable of doing much more than you think you are the biggest limitation you have in your life to achieving so many things that you want to do is your imagination and your will. If you discipline your mind and you're not afraid of hard work and you're willing to suffer some adversity, you can do extraordinary things with your life. And I think people, they aim too low. That's interesting. You know, most successful people, if you ask them, wish their sort of regrets they, they always say they wish they would have t- taken more chances. And I've always sort of wondered to myself, there probably are a lot of people who did take chances and failed and failed and n- never were successful. Obviously, you hear the stories of the winners. So, yeah. you know, if you were to give advice right now, the world is hurting. There is COVID. People seem to be limited by their own inertia. What would you say to somebody? How do you overcome inertia? What's that first step? Because that's often the toughest one. You have to start small. Like I'll never forget the first thing I did when I got into mountaineering many, many decades ago. I didn't have this grand ambition to, you know, do the seven summits or anything. I just started with one mountain, Kilimanjaro. And that was doable for someone who never had any experience. But you have to make the commitment to say, I'm going to go do this. You, You go and you buy that plane ticket and you reserve the time and you execute. You don't put it off till tomorrow or tomorrow or tomorrow. You do this one small thing and it starts to snowball and you get confidence. And before you know it, you're doing wild things like this. I will tell you one thing. I am pretty sure when I go to my, you know, next phase of uh, this existence, I'm not going to say, boy, I wish I'd taken more risks. 
No, no, you definitely, though, though I have to admit you have not gone to outer space yet. Is well, that something I'd that... Like I'd like to very much. The price point is still a little bit higher than I can afford. I know some people bought some tickets recently for over 50 million each, but I'm hoping that price point will come down and I can finally get to space. That is a big dream of mine. So you mentioned Kilimanjaro. And so uh, I was 11 years old when my father took me to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Wow. And um, yeah, it was cool. And at the time, there was nothing that seemed odd about it because, you know, I just assume other people do these things. I was lucky my father was a pilot. We could fly there. But now I look around at kids that age and I know kids that age because my kids are that age. And I think, oh my gosh, kids today, they need a snack every 10 minutes. They need a safe place. All of those things. How do we develop more grit in young kids today? Well, I think uh, part of what I've seen, and I, I do not have kids, but I have a lot of friends who do, is that I think there has been a tendency in the last several decades that people are very protective of their children, as they should be. But you have to give them the ability to fail as well and to take some risks and maybe even get hurt. I know my parents were really cool about that. I guess it helped a lot that my mother was an intensive care nurse, which came in handy a couple of times. But I, I definitely think that one can be too protective and that the world is not a safe place. The world is actually a difficult place. And I think kids need to understand that, that things are not going to be handed to them, and that they have to work hard to achieve great things. They're not just gonna be given to you. And I've seen that in people that I work with that are younger as well. It's almost like they expect the world to behave according to their wishes, and it absolutely does not do so. It's a bucking bronco that you gotta get on, and if you play it right, you can have an extraordinary ride, but you know, it's not gonna be docile for your benefit. <laughs> Victor, you know you're sort of getting into the realm of hero. I, I said in the beginning uh, of the show, no, I, I, I know you don't want to hear this. I'm going to die soon. I don't want that. <laughs> no, I know. And you're going to go, wow, 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 wow. I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear. But you have to. La, 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 la. But, you know, there are people who do look up to you. There are people who are amazed. And, and I know that is possibly an uncomfortable thing because – Everybody, everybody has this element of them that they feel they're slightly fraudulent, especially the more successful you think, well, if, you know, I got there and you, people make excuses. Is there anybody you still look at and say, wow, that's my hero. That's somebody I admire. That's somebody I wish I was like. Well, there are many people like that. I mean, I loved getting to know Dr. Sullivan. I mean, she was in some respects, a, you know, a, a female counterpart to myself, you know, an astronaut someone who you know studied marine geology she's not one-dimensional she's done so many different things i'm so privileged i got to get to know her but there are the people in history that i look up to i read history voraciously and you know in, in the realm of exploration my big hero is uh, roald amundsen who i think was epitomized to me what a great explorer was many of them were brave like your shackletons or your scots or perry's but he was so methodical and so driven, and he executed expeditions that didn't have a lot of drama. And those are the best expeditions, the ones that I admire. And then there are, of course, the, the military leaders and all those that showed incredible fortitude and bravery. Uh, those are the people that in history, all you have to do is read enough history and you will find some extraordinary role models. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Amundsen and Scott because they really were counter opposites. Scott came from sort of a, an atmosphere where British ingenuity could conquer all, and Am Amundsen really knew about 
native or Inuit or or people who lived in those environments, and that's what he learned from. So I think there's a real um, dichotomy of humility as as of how they approached problems. Yeah, and also, I mean, it shouldn't be ignored the fact that Amundsen could also be quite ruthless in his execution. They did the math and figured out the only way they could get to the South Pole and back was with dogs. But they knew that, you know, almost all of them were not going to make it back. <laughs> they would actually have to kill the dogs in order to provide the material for the other dogs to survive, which is just a brutal way to approach a problem. Not that I you know, think that that's a great thing, but it worked and they achieved something extraordinary. But I'm just saying that you have to look at all variables if you're going to try and do something extraordinary. And, you know, he got it done and no, uh, no member of his team got killed or even seriously injured, did it on the timeline where you look at the Scott expedition and, you know, they went in with so much grit and so much bravery. But, you know, there's an old joke in the military is that, you know, when you're when you're a real hero in the military, it means that someone really, really screwed up. <laughs> What's well, interesting, you talk about that methodical way. My father, as I mentioned, was an airline pilot. I started flying at 16. But even to this day, my father's still alive. When we drive, we have a clear um, voice commands if we're driving. If you can't see, he'll say clear left, clear right. And, and that's yeah. that's the command. And I remember my father, when he was first teaching me how to do like full power stalls. That's kind of frightening when you first start flying and you pull way up and, you know, start shuddering and you're starting to fall back in an awkward thing. And my father would just be looking at his watch or yawning and, and I'd be gripping the controls. But I always admired that he put himself in this bubble of calm, that he was able to assess the situation. And, and I can't tell you how many times later in life that has been invaluable to me on, on any number of situations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, I've definitely done power on stalls. What will really get your attention is the first time you do an auto rotation in a helicopter and they <laughs> shut the engine off and you've got to land a helicopter with no power. That will definitely uh, wake you up. But after you do it a hundred times, it's actually really fun and exciting and you can look really calm doing it. But I think that's an important point, which is fear is a wonderful emotion that helps us stay alive and can focus us, but you can't let it dominate your thinking. And I think being a pilot has been such a wonderful thing. I'm glad I did when I was young because it, it provides a lot of mental discipline and processes that can then be applied to so many parts of your life in a very good way. And I wish more people flew because uh, young people flew because I think it's a wonderful experience that they should have. So Victor, you um, have been very um, aquatically centric lately. I know you have some ideas for other expeditions coming up. Anything that you could give us a hint over on? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, my my real exploration started in the mountains, and that's what I really love. Uh, in this most recent expedition, the Mauna Kea was pretty fun because I got to combine deep sea mission with actually climbing a mountain within the span of just a couple of days. And usually people do one or the other. They do mountaineering or they do deep sea exploration. They don't do both. So it's kind of fun to have a foot in both worlds, but I miss hardcore mountaineering, high altitude stuff. So I am planning a pretty major expedition this fall. I'm not going to disclose kind of where we're going or how we're going to do it, but it's a, it's a pretty big mountain and uh, I don't want to talk about it to jinx it uh, until we've actually gone there and, and done it because any number of things could mess it up because it's a challenging place. And um, yeah, I just don't want to build up expectations. I like to report on things after they're done, not before. 
and, and, and I'm very appreciative of you spending time today, 48 hours after accomplishing another mission. And really, Victor, I want to thank you during this period of COVID that you gave us all a reason to dream again, a reason to feel good, to sort of take our heads and look up at what is possible. So, Victor, thank you again for being a guest. No, thanks for uh, chatting with me and, and listening uh, about the experiences. All right. Terrific. Every great expedition has to come to an end, but that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.